Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing with Book 1, Chapter 14, Section 8. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider praying and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Section 8. Those who presume to dogmatize on the ranks and numbers of angels would do well to consider on what foundation they rest. As to their rank, I admit that Michael is described by David as a mighty prince, and by Jude as an archangel. Paul also tells us that an archangel will blow the trumpet which is to summon the world to judgment. But how is it possible from such passages to ascertain the gradations of honor among the angels, to determine the insignia, and assign the place and station of each? Even the two names, Michael and Gabriel, mentioned in Scripture, are a third if you choose to add it from the history of Tobit seem to intimate by their meaning that they are given to angels in accommodation to the witness of their capacity, though I rather choose not to speak positively on the point. As to the number of angels, we learn from the mouth of our Savior that there are many legions, and from Daniel that there are many myriads. Elisha's servants saw a multitude of chariots, and their vast number is declared by the fact that they encamp round about those that fear the Lord. It is certain that spirits have no bodily shape, and yet Scripture, in accommodation to us, describes them under the form of winged cherubim and seraphim, not without cause to assure us that when occasion requires, they will hasten to our aid with incredible swiftness, winging their way to us with the speed of lightning. Farther than this, in regard both to the ranks and numbers of angels, let us class them among those mysterious subjects, the full revelation of which is deferred to the last day, and accordingly refrain from inquiring too curiously or talking presumptuously. Section 9. There is one point, however, which though called into doubt by certain restless individuals, we ought to hold for certain, viz., that angels are ministering spirits, Hebrews 1.14, whose service God employs for the protection of his people and by whose means he distributes his favors among men, and also executes other works. The Sadducees of old maintain that by angels nothing more was meant than the movements which God impresses on men, or manifestations which he gives of his own power. Acts 23.8 But this dream is contradicted by so many passages of Scripture that it seems strange how such gross ignorance could have had any countenance among the Jews. To say nothing of the passages I have already quoted, passages which refer to thousands and legions of angels, speak of them as rejoicing, as bearing up the faithful in their hands, carrying their souls to rest, beholding the face of their Father, and so forth. 
There are other passages which most clearly prove that they are real beings possessed of spiritual essence. Stephen and Paul say that the law was enacted in the hands of angels. Our Savior, moreover, says that at the resurrection the elect will be like angels, that the day of judgment is known not even to the angels, that at that time he himself will come with the holy angels. However much such passages may be twisted, their meaning is plain. In like manner, when Paul beseeches Timothy to keep his precepts as before Christ and his elect angels, it is not qualities or inspirations without substance that he speaks of, but true spirits. And when it is said in the epistle to the Hebrews that Christ was made more excellent than the angels, that the world was not made subject to them, that Christ assumed not their nature but that of man, it is impossible to give a meaning to the passages without understanding that angels are blessed spirits, as to whom such comparisons may competently be made. The author of that epistle declares the same thing when he places the souls of believers and the holy angels together in the kingdom of heaven. Moreover, in the passages we have already quoted, the angels of children are said to behold the face of God, to defend us by their protection, to rejoice in our salvation, to admire the manifold grace of God in the church, to be under Christ their head. To the same effect is their frequent appearance to the holy patriarchs in human form, their speaking and consenting to be hospitably entertained. Christ, too, in consequence of the supremacy which he obtains as mediator, is called the angel, Malachi 3.1. It was thought proper to touch on this subject in passing, with the view of putting the simple upon their guard against the foolish and absurd imaginations which, suggested by Satan many centuries ago, are ever and anon starting up anew. Section 10 it remains to give warning against the superstition which usually begins to creep in when it is said that all blessings are ministered and dispensed to us by angels. For the human mind is apt immediately to think that there is no honor which they ought not to receive, and hence the peculiar offices of Christ and God are bestowed upon them. In this way the glory of Christ was for several former ages greatly obscured, extravagant eulogiums being pronounced on angels without any authority from Scripture. Among the corruptions which we now oppose, there is scarcely any one of greater antiquity. Even Paul appears to have had a severe contest with some who so exalted angels as to make them almost the superiors of Christ. Hence, he so anxiously urges in his epistle to the Colossians, Colossians 1, verses 16 and 20, that Christ is not only superior to all angels, but that all the endowments which they possess are derived from him, thus warning us against forsaking him by turning to those who are not sufficient for themselves, but must draw with us at a common fountain. As the refulgence of the divine glory is manifested in them, there is nothing to which we are more prone than to prostrate ourselves before them in stupid adoration, and then ascribe to them the blessings which we owe to God alone. Even John confesses in the Apocalypse, Revelation 19, 10, 22, 8, and 9, that this was his own case, but he immediately adds the answer which was given to him, quote, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant. Worship God. Unquote. Section 11. 
This danger we will happily avoid, if we consider why it is that God, instead of acting directly without their agency, is wont to employ it in manifesting his power, providing for the safety of his people, and imparting the gifts of his beneficence. This he certainly does not from necessity, as if he were unable to dispense with them. Whenever he pleases, he passes them by, and performs his own work by a single nod. So far are they from relieving him of any difficulty. Therefore, when he employs them, it is as a help to our weakness, that nothing may be wanting to elevate our hopes or strengthen our confidence. It ought indeed to be sufficient for us that the Lord declares himself to be our protector. But when we see ourselves beset by so many perils, so many injuries, so many kinds of enemies, such as our frailty and effeminacy, that we might at times be filled with alarm or driven to despair, did not the Lord proclaim his gracious presence by some means in accordance with our feeble capacities. For this reason, he not only promises to take care of us, but assures us that he has numberless attendants, to whom he has committed the charge of our safety, that whatever dangers may intend, so long as we are encircled by their protection and guardianship, we are placed beyond all hazard of evil. I admit that after we have a simple assurance of the divine protection, it is improper in us still to look round for help. But since for this our weakness, the Lord is pleased in his infinite goodness and indulgence to provide it would ill become us to overlook the favor. Of this we have an example in the servant of Elisha, 2 Kings 6.17, who, seeing the mountain encompassed by the army of the Assyrians, and no means of escape, was completely overcome with terror, and thought it all over with himself and his master. Then Elijah prayed to God to open the eyes of the servant, who forthwith beheld the mountain filled with horses and chariots of fire. In other words, with a multitude of angels to whom he and the prophet had been given in charge. Confirmed by the Spirit, he received courage and could boldly defy the enemy whose appearance previously filled him with dismay. Section 12 Whatever, therefore, is said as to the ministry of angels, let us employ for the purpose of removing all distrust and strengthening our confidence in God. Since the Lord has provided us with such protection, let us not be terrified at the multitude of our enemies, as if they could prevail notwithstanding of his aid. But let us adopt the sentiment of Elisha, that more are for us than against us. How preposterous, therefore, is it to allow ourselves to be led away from God by angels who have been appointed for the very purpose of assuring us of his more immediate presence to help us. But we are so led away if angels do not conduct us directly to him, making us look to him, invoke and celebrate him as our only defender, if they are not regarded merely as hands moving to our assistance just as he directs if they do not direct us to Christ as the only mediator on whom we must wholly depend and recline, looking towards him and resting in him. Our minds ought to give thorough heed to what Jacob saw in his vision, Genesis 28.12, angels descending to the earth to men, and again mounting up from men to heaven by means of a ladder, at the head of which the Lord of hosts was seated, intimating that it is solely by the intercession of Christ that the ministry of angels extends to us as he himself declares quote, hereafter ye shall see heaven open 
and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. John 1.51 Accordingly, the servant of Abraham, though he had been commended to the guardianship of an angel, Genesis 24.7, does not therefore invoke that angel to be present with him, but, trusting to the commendation, pours out his prayers before the Lord, and entreats him to show mercy to Abraham. As God does not make angels the ministers of his power and goodness, that he may share his glory with them, so he does not promise his assistance by their instrumentality, that we may divide our confidence between him and them. Away, then, with that platonic philosophy of seeking access to God by means of angels, and courting them with the view of making God more propitious, a philosophy which presumptuous and superstitious men attempted at first to introduce into our religion, and which they persist in even to this day. Section 13. The tendency of all that Scripture teaches concerning devils is to put us on our guard against their wiles and machinations, that we may provide ourselves with weapons strong enough to drive away the most formidable foes. For when Satan is called the God and ruler of this world, the strong man armed, the prince of the power of the air, the roaring lion, the object of all these descriptions is to make us more cautious and vigilant, and more prepared for the contest. This is sometimes stated in distinct terms. For Peter, after describing the devil as a roaring lion, going about seeking whom he may devour, immediately adds the exhortation, quote, whom resist steadfast in the faith, unquote, 1 Peter 5.8. And Paul, after reminding us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, immediately enjoins us to put on armor equal to so great and perilous a contest. Ephesians 6.12 Wherefore, let this be the use to which we turn all these statements, being forewarned of the constant presence of an enemy, the most daring, the most powerful, the most crafty, the most indefatigable, the most completely equipped with all the engines, and the most expert in the science of war. Let us not allow ourselves to be overtaken by sloth or cowardice, but on the contrary, with minds aroused and ever on the alert, let us stand ready to resist. And, knowing that this warfare is terminated only by death, let us study to persevere. Above all, fully conscious of our weakness and want of skill, let us invoke the help of God and attempt nothing without trusting in Him, since it is His alone to supply counsel and strength and courage and arms. Section 14. That we may feel the more strongly urged to do so. The scripture declares that the enemies who are against us are not one or two or few in number, but a great host. Mary Magdalene is said to have been delivered from seven devils by which she was possessed, and our Savior assures us that it is an ordinary circumstance when a devil has been expelled, if access is again given to it, to take seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and resume the vacant possession, nay, one man is said to have been possessed by whole legion. By this, then, we are taught that the number of enemies with whom we have to war is almost infinite, that we may not, from a contemptuous idea of the fewness of their numbers, be more remiss in the contest, or from imagining that an occasional truce is given us indulge in sloth. 
In one Satan or devil being often mentioned in the singular number, the thing devoted is that dominion of iniquity which is opposed to the reign of righteousness. For, as the church and the communion of saints has Christ for its head, so the faction of the wicked and wickedness itself is portrayed with its prince exercising supremacy. Hence the expression, quote, Depart, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Unquote. Matthew 25:41. Section 15. One thing which ought to animate us to perpetual contest with the devil is that he is everywhere called both our adversary and the adversary of God. For if the glory of God is dear to us, as it ought to be, we ought to struggle with all our might against him who aims at the extinction of that glory. If we are animated with proper zeal to maintain the kingdom of Christ, we must wage irreconcilable war with him who conspires its ruin. Again, if we have any anxiety about our own salvation, we ought to make no peace nor truce with him who is continually laying schemes for its destruction. But such is the character given to Satan in the third chapter of Genesis, where he is seen seducing man from his allegiance to God, that he may both deprive God of his due honor, and plunge man headlong in destruction. Such, too, is the description given of him in the Gospels, Matthew 13:28, where he is called the enemy, and is said to sow tares in order to corrupt the seed of eternal life. In one word, in all his actions we experience the truth of our Savior's description, that he was, quote, a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, unquote. John 8.44 Truth he assails with lies, light he obscures with darkness. The minds of men he involves in error. He stirs up hatred, inflames strife and war, and all in order that he may overthrow the kingdom of God and drown men in eternal perdition with himself. Hence it is evident that his whole nature is depraved, mischievous, and malignant. There must be extreme depravity in a mind bent on assailing the glory of God and the salvation of man. This is intimated by John in his epistle, when he says that he, quote, sinneth from the beginning, 1 John 3.8, implying that he is the author, leader, and contriver of all malice and wickedness. Section 16. But as the devil was created by God, we must remember that this malice which we attribute to his nature is not from creation, but from deprivation. Everything damnable in him he brought upon himself by his revolt and fall. Of this scripture reminds us, lest, by believing that he was so created at first, we should ascribe to God what is most foreign to his nature. For this reason Christ declares, John 8.44, that Satan, when he lies... Quote, speaketh of his own, unquote, and states the reason, quote, because he abode not in the truth, unquote. By saying that he abode not in the truth, he certainly intimates that he once was in the truth, and by calling him the father of lies, he puts it out of his power to charge God with the depravity of which he was himself the cause. But although the expressions are brief and not very explicit, they are amply sufficient to vindicate the majesty of God from every calumny. And what more does it concern us to know of devils? 
Some murmur because the scripture does not, in various passages, give a distinct and regular exposition of Satan's fall, its cause, mode, date, and nature. But as these things are of no consequence to us, it was better, if not entirely to pass them in silence, at least only to touch lightly upon them. The Holy Spirit could not deign to feed curiosity with idle, unprofitable histories. We see it was the Lord's purpose to deliver nothing in his sacred oracles which we might not learn for edification. Therefore, instead of dwelling on superfluous matters, let it be sufficient for us briefly to hold, with regard to the nature of devils, that at their first creation they were the angels of God, but by revolting they both ruined themselves and became the instruments of perdition to others. As it was useful to know this much, it is clearly taught by Peter and Jude, quote, God, unquote, they say, quote, spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Unquote. Second Peter two four, Jude verse six. And Paul, by speaking of the elect angels, obviously draws a tacit contrast between them and reprobate angels. Section seventeen. With regard to the strife and war which Satan is said to wage with God, it must be understood with this qualification, that Satan cannot possibly do anything against the will and consent of God. For we read in the history of Job that Satan appears in the presence of God to receive his commands and dares not proceed to execute any enterprise until he is authorized. In the same way, when Ahab was to be deceived, he undertook to be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets, and on being commissioned by the Lord, proceeds to do so. For this reason also, the spirit which tormented Saul is said to be an evil spirit from the Lord, because he was, as it were, the scourge by which the misdeeds of the wicked king were punished. In another place it is said that the plagues of Egypt were inflicted by God through the instrumentality of wicked angels. In conformity with these particular examples, Paul declares generally that unbelievers are blinded by God, though he had previously described it as the doing of Satan. It is evident, therefore, that Satan is under the power of God, and is so ruled by his authority that he must yield obedience to it. Moreover, though we say that Satan resists God, and does works at variance with his works, we at the same time maintain that this contrariety and opposition depend on the permission of God. I now speak not of Satan's will and endeavor, but only of the result. For the disposition of the devil being wicked, he has no inclination whatever to obey the divine will, but, on the contrary, is wholly bent on contumacy and rebellion. This much, therefore, he has of himself and his own iniquity, that he eagerly and of set purpose opposes God, aiming at those things which he deems most contrary to the will of God. But as God holds him bound and fettered by the curb of his power, he executes those things only for which permission has been given him, and thus, however unwilling, obeys his Creator, being forced, whenever he is required, to do him service. Section 18 God, thus turning the unclean spirits hither and thither at his pleasure, employs them in exercising believers by warring against them, assailing them with wiles, urging them with solicitations, 
pressing close upon them, disturbing, alarming, and occasionally wounding, but never conquering or oppressing them. Whereas they hold the wicked in thraldom, exercise dominion over their minds and bodies, and employ them as bond slaves in all kinds of iniquity. Because believers are disturbed by such enemies, they are addressed in such exhortations as these, quote, Neither give place to the devil, unquote. Quote, Your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, unquote. Ephesians 4.27, 1 Peter 5.8 Paul acknowledges that he was not exempt from this species of contest when he says that for the purpose of subduing his pride, a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet him. 2 Corinthians 12.7 This trial, therefore, is common to all the children of God. But as the promise of bruising Satan's head, Genesis 3.15, applies alike to Christ and to all his members, I deny that believers can ever be oppressed or vanquished by him. They are often, indeed, thrown into alarm, but never so thoroughly as not to recover themselves. They fall by the violence of the blows, but they get up again. They are wounded, but not mortally. In fine, they labor on through the whole course of their lives, so as ultimately to gain the victory, though they meet with occasional defeats. We know how David, through the just anger of God, was left for a time to Satan, and by his instigation numbered the people. 2 Samuel 24.1 Nor without cause does Paul hold out a hope of pardon in case any should have become ensnared by the wiles of the devil. 2 Timothy 2.26 Accordingly, he elsewhere shows that the promise above quoted commences in this life where the struggle is carried on, and that it is completed after the struggle is ended. His words are, quote, The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Unquote. Romans 16.20 In our head, indeed, this victory was always perfect, because the prince of the world, quote, had nothing, unquote, in him. John 1430. But in us, who are his members, it is now partially obtained, and will be perfected when we shall have put off our mortal flesh, through which we are liable to infirmity, and shall have been filled with the energy of the Holy Spirit. In this way, when the kingdom of Christ is raised up and established, that of Satan falls, as our Lord himself expresses it, quote, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, unquote. Luke 10.18. By these words he confirmed the report which the apostles gave of the efficacy of their preaching. In like manner he says, quote, When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. Unquote. Luke 11:21 and 22. And to this end, Christ, by dying, overcame Satan, who had the power of death, Hebrews 2.14, and triumphed over all his hosts, that they might not injure the church, which otherwise would suffer from them every moment. For, such being our weakness and such his raging fury, how could we withstand his manifold and unintermitted assaults for any period, however short, if we did not trust to the victory of our leader? 
God, therefore, does not allow Satan to have dominion over the souls of believers, but only gives them over to his sway the impious and unbelieving, whom he deigns not to number among his flock. For the devil is said to have undisputed possession of this world until he is dispossessed by Christ. In like manner, he is said to blind all who do not believe the gospel, and to do his own work in the children of a disobedience. And justly, for all the wicked are vessels of wrath, and accordingly, to whom should they be subjected but the minister of the divine vengeance? In fine, they are said to be of their father, the devil. For as believers are recognized to be the sons of God by bearing his image, so the wicked are properly regarded as the children of Satan from having degenerated into his image. Section 19 Having above refuted that nugatory philosophy concerning the holy angels, which teaches that they are nothing but good motions or inspirations which God excites in the minds of men, we must here likewise refute those who foolishly allege that devils are nothing but bad affections or perturbations suggested by our carnal nature. The brief refutation is to be found in passages of Scripture on this subject, passages neither few nor obscure. First, when they are called unclean spirits and apostate angels, Matthew 12:43, Jude verse 6, who have degenerated from their original, the very terms sufficiently declare that they are not motions or affections of the mind, but truly, as they are called, minds or spirits endued with sense and intellect. In like manner, when the children of God are contrasted by John, and also by our Savior, with the children of the devil, would not the contrast be absurd if the term devil meant nothing more than evil inspirations? And John adds still more emphatically that the devil sinneth from the beginning, 1 John 3.8. In like manner, when Jude introduces the archangel Michael contending with the devil, Jude verse 9, he certainly contrasts a wicked and rebellious with a good angel. To this corresponds the account given in the book of Job that Satan appeared in the presence of God with the holy angels. But the clearest passages of all are those which make mention of the punishment which, from the judgment of God, they already began to feel, and are to feel more especially at the resurrection. Quote, what have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Unquote. Matthew 8:29 and again quote, depart ye cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels unquote. Matthew 25:41 again quote, if god spared not the angels that sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment unquote, etc 2 peter 2 verse 4 how absurd the expressions that devils are doomed to eternal punishment, that fire is prepared for them, that they are even now excruciated and tormented by the glory of Christ, if there were truly no devils at all. But as all discussion on this subject is superfluous for those who give credit to the word of God, while little is gained by quoting scripture to those empty speculators whom nothing but novelty can please, I believe I have already done enough for my purpose, which was to put the pious on their guard against the delirious dreams with which restless men harass themselves and simple. 
The subject, however, deserved to be touched upon, lest any, by embracing that error, should imagine they have no enemy, and thereby be more remiss or less cautious in resisting. Section 20. Meanwhile, being placed in this most beautiful theater, let us not decline to take a pious delight in the clear and manifest works of God. For as we have elsewhere observed, though not the chief, it is in point of order the first evidence of faith to remember to which side soever we turn, that all which meets the eye is the work of God, and at the same time to meditate with pious care on the end which God had in view in creating it. Wherefore, in order that we may apprehend with true faith what is necessary to know concerning God, it is of importance to attend to the history of the creation as briefly recorded by Moses, and afterwards more copiously illustrated by pious writers, more especially by Basil and Ambrose. From this history we learn that God, by the power of his word and his spirit, created the heavens and the earth out of nothing that thereafter he produced things inanimate and animate of every kind, arranging an innumerable variety of objects in admirable order, giving each kind its proper nature, office, place, and station. At the same time, as all things were liable to corruption, providing for the perpetuation of each single species, cherishing some by secret methods, and as it were from time to time instilling new vigor into them, and bestowing on others a power of continuing their race, so preventing it from perishing at their own death. Heaven and earth being thus most richly adorned, and copiously supplied with all things, like a large and splendid mansion gorgeously constructed and exquisitely furnished, at length man was made, man, by the beauty of his person and his many noble endowments, the most glorious specimen of the works of God. But, as I have no intention to give the history of creation in detail, it is sufficient to have again thus briefly touched on it in passing. I have already reminded my reader that the best course for him is to derive his knowledge of the subject from Moses and others, who have carefully and faithfully transmitted an account of the creation. Section 21 It is unnecessary to dwell at length on the end that should be aimed at in considering the works of God. The subject has been in a great measure explained elsewhere, and in so far as required by our present work, may now be disposed of in a few words. Undoubtedly, were one to attempt to speak in due terms of the inestimable wisdom, power, justice, and goodness of God in the formation of the world, no grace or splendor of diction could equal the greatness of the subject. Still, there can be no doubt that the Lord would have us constantly occupied with such holy meditation, in order that, while we contemplate the immense treasures of wisdom and goodness exhibited in the creatures, as in so many mirrors, we may not only run our eye over them with a hasty and, as it were, evanescent glance, but dwell long upon them, seriously and faithfully turn them in our minds, and every now and then bring them to recollection. But as the present work is of a didactic nature, we cannot fittingly enter on subjects which require lengthened discourse. Therefore, in order to be compendious, let the reader understand that he has a genuine apprehension of the character of God as the creator of the world. First, if he attends to the general rule, never thoughtlessly or obliviously to overlook the glorious perfections which God displays in his creatures. And, secondly, if he makes a self-application of what he sees, so as to fix it deeply on his heart, 
The former is exemplified when we consider how great the architect must be who framed and ordered the multitude of the starry host so admirably that it is impossible to imagine a more glorious sight, so stationing some and fixing them to particular spots that they cannot move, giving a freer course to others, yet setting limits to their wanderings so tempering the movement of the whole as to measure out day and night, months, years, and seasons, and at the same time so regulating the inequality of days as to prevent everything like confusion. The former course is, moreover, exemplified when we attend to his power in sustaining the vast mass and guiding the swift revolutions of the heavenly bodies, etc., these few examples sufficiently explain what is meant by recognizing the divine perfections in the creation of the world. Were we to attempt to go over the whole subject, we should never come to a conclusion, there being as many miracles of divine power, as many striking evidences of wisdom and goodness, as there are classes of objects, nay, as there are individual objects, great or small, throughout the universe. Section 22 the other course, which has a closer relation to faith, remains to be considered, viz. that while we observe how God has destined all things for our good and salvation, we at the same time feel his power and grace, both in ourselves and in the great blessings which he has bestowed upon us. Thence, stirring up ourselves to confidence in him, to invocation, praise, and love, Moreover, as I lately observed, the Lord himself, by the very order of creation, has demonstrated that he created all things for the sake of man. Nor is it unimportant to observe that he divided the formation of the world into six days, though it had been in no respect more difficult to complete the whole work in all its parts in one moment than by a gradual progression. But he was pleased to display his providence and paternal care towards us in this, that before he formed man, he provided whatever he foresaw would be useful and salutary to him. How ungrateful, then, were it to doubt whether we are cared for by this most excellent parent, who we see cared for us even before we were born. How impious were it to tremble in distrust, lest we should one day be abandoned in our necessity by that kindness which, antecedent to our existence, displayed itself in a complete supply of all good things. Moreover, Moses tells us that everything which the world contains is liberally placed at our disposal. This God certainly did not that he might delude us with an empty form of donation. Nothing, therefore, which concerns our safety will ever be wanting. To conclude, in one word, as often as we call God the creator of heaven and earth, let us remember that the distribution of all the things which he created are in his hand and power, but that we are his sons, whom he has undertaken to nourish and bring up in allegiance to him, that we may expect the substance of all good from him alone, and have full hope that he will never suffer us to be in want of things necessary to salvation so as to leave us dependent on some other source, that in everything we desire we may address our prayers to him, and in every benefit we receive acknowledgment his hand and give him thanks, that thus allured by his great goodness and beneficence we may study with our whole heart to love and serve him. Chapter 15 State in which man was created 
the faculties of the soul, the image of God, free will, original righteousness. There are eight sections. Section 1. We have now to speak of the creation of man, not only because of all the works of God it is the noblest and most admirable specimen of his justice, wisdom, and goodness, but, as we observed at the outset, we cannot clearly and properly know God unless the knowledge of ourselves be added. This knowledge is twofold, relating first to the condition in which we were at first created, and, secondly, to our condition such as it began to be immediately after Adam's fall. For it would little avail us to know how we were created if we remained ignorant of the corruption and degradation of our nature in consequence of the fall. At present, however, we confine ourselves to a consideration of our nature in its original integrity, and, certainly, before we descend to the miserable condition into which man has fallen, it is of importance to consider what he was at first. For there is need of caution, lest we attend only to the natural ills of man, and thereby seem to ascribe them to the author of nature. Impiety, deeming it a sufficient defense of it, can pretend that everything vicious in it proceeded in some sense from God, and not hesitating, when accused, to plead against God, and throw the blame of its guilt upon him. Those who would be thought to speak more reverently of the deity catch at an excuse for their depravity from nature, not considering that they also, though more obscurely, bring a charge against God, on whom the dishonor would fall if anything vicious were proved to exist in nature. Seeing, therefore, that the flesh is continually on the alert for subterfuges, by which it imagines it can remove the blame of its own wickedness from itself to some other quarter, we must diligently guard against this depraved procedure, and accordingly treat of the calamity of the human race in such a way as may cut off every evasion, and vindicate the justice of God against all who would impugn it. We shall afterwards see, in its own place, Book 2, Chapter 1, Section 3, how far mankind now are from the purity originally conferred on Adam. And first, it is to be observed that when he was formed out of the dust of the ground, a curb was laid on his pride, nothing being more absurd than that those should glory in their excellence who not only dwell in tabernacles of clay, but are themselves in part dust and ashes. But God, having not only deigned to animate a vessel of clay, but to make it the habitation of an immortal spirit, Adam might well glory in the great liberality of his Maker. Section 2. Moreover, there can be no question that man consists of a body and a soul, meaning by soul an immortal, though created essence, which is his nobler part. Sometimes he is called a spirit, but though the two terms, while they are used together, differ in their meaning, still when spirit is used by itself, it is equivalent to soul, as when Solomon, speaking of death, says that the spirit returns to God who gave it. Ecclesiastes 12.7 And Christ, in commending his spirit to the Father, and Stephen his to Christ, simply mean that when the soul is freed from the prison house of the body, God becomes its perpetual keeper. Those who imagine that the soul is called a spirit because it is a breath or energy divinely infused into bodies, but devoid of essence, err too grossly. 
as is shown both by the nature of the thing and the whole tenor of the scripture. It is true indeed that men cleaving too much to the earth are dull of apprehension, nay, being alienated from the Father of lights, are so immersed in darkness as to imagine that they will not survive the grave. Still, the light is not so completely quenched in darkness that all sense of immortality is lost. Conscience, which, distinguishing between good and evil, responds to the judgment of God, is an undoubted sign of an immortal spirit. How could motion devoid of essence penetrate to the judgment seat of God and, under a sense of guilt, strike itself with terror? The body cannot be affected by any fear of spiritual punishment. This is competent only to the soul, which must therefore be endued with essence. Then the mere knowledge of a God sufficiently proves that souls which rise higher than the world must be immortal, yet being impossible that any evanescent vigor could reach the very fountain of life. In fine, while the many noble faculties with which the human mind is endued proclaim that something divine is engraven on it, they are so many evidences of an immortal essence. For such sense as the lower animals possess goes not beyond the body, or at least not beyond the objects actually presented to it. But the swiftness with which the human mind glances from heaven to earth, scans the secrets of nature, and after it has embraced all ages with intellect and memory, digests each in its proper order, and reads the future and the past, clearly demonstrates that there lurks in man a something separated from the body. We have intellect by which we are able to conceive of the invisible God and angels, a thing of which body is altogether incapable. We have ideas of rectitude, justice, and honesty, ideas which the bodily senses cannot reach. The seat of these ideas must therefore be a spirit. Nay, sleep itself, which stupefying the man seems even to deprive him of life, is no obscure evidence of immortality not only suggesting thoughts of things which never existed, but foreboding future events. I briefly touch on topics which even profane writers describe with a more splendid eloquence. For pious readers, a simple reference is sufficient. Were not the soul some kind of essence separated from the body? Scripture would not teach that we dwell in houses of clay, and at death remove from a tabernacle of flesh that we put off that which is corruptible in order that, at the last day, we may finally receive according to the deeds done in the body. These and similar passages, which everywhere occur, not only clearly distinguish the soul from the body, but by giving it the name of man, intimate that it is his principal part. Again, when Paul exhorts believers to cleanse themselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, he shows that there are two parts in which the taint of sin resides. Peter also, in calling Christ the shepherd and bishop of souls, would have spoken absurdly if there were no souls towards which he might discharge such an office. Nor would there be any ground for what he says concerning the eternal salvation of souls or for his injunction to purify our souls, or for his assertion that fleshly lusts war against the soul, neither could the author of the epistle to the Hebrews say that pastors watch as those who must give an account for our souls if souls were devoid of essence. To the same effect, Paul calls God to witness upon his soul, which could not be brought to trial before God if incapable of suffering punishment. 
This is still more clearly expressed by our Savior when he bids us fear him who, after he hath killed the body, is able also to cast into hell fire. Again, when the author of the epistle to the Hebrews distinguishes the fathers of our flesh from God, who alone is the father of our spirits, he could not have asserted the essence of the soul in clearer terms. Moreover, did not the soul, when freed from the fetters of the body, continue to exist, our Savior would not have represented the soul of Lazarus as enjoying blessedness in Abraham's bosom, while, on the contrary, that of Dives was suffering dreadful torments. Paul assures us of the same thing when he says that so long as we are present in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Not to dwell on a matter as to which there is little obscurity, I will only add that Luke mentions among the errors of the Sadducees that they believed neither angel nor spirit. Section 3. A strong proof of this point may be gathered from its being said that man was created in the image of God, for though the divine glory is displayed in man's outward appearance, it cannot be doubted that the proper seat of the image is in the soul. I deny not, indeed, that external shape, in so far as it distinguishes and separates us from the lower animals, brings us nearer to God. Nor will I vehemently oppose any who may choose to include under the image of God that, quote, while the mute creation downward bend, their sight and to their earthly mother tend, man looks aloft and with erected eyes beholds his own hereditary skies, unquote. Only let it be understood that the image of God which is beheld or made conspicuous by these external marks is spiritual. For Osiander, whose writings exhibit a perverse ingenuity and futile devices, extending the image of God indiscriminately as well to the body as to the soul, confounds heaven with earth. He says that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit placed their image in man because, even though Adam had stood entire, Christ would still have become man. Thus, according to him, the body which was destined for Christ was a model and type of that corporeal figure which was then formed. But where does he find that Christ is an image of the Spirit? I admit, indeed, that in the person of the Mediator, the glory of the whole Godhead is displayed. But how can the Eternal Word, who in order precedes the Spirit, be called His image? In short, the distinction between the Son and the Spirit is destroyed when the former is represented as the image of the latter. Moreover, I should like to know in what respect Christ in the flesh in which he was clothed resembles the Holy Spirit, and by what marks or lineaments the likeness is expressed. And since the expression, quote, let us make man in our own image, unquote, is used in the person of the Son also, it follows that he is the image of himself, a thing utterly absurd. Add that, according to the figment of Osiander, Adam was formed after the model or type of the man Christ. Hence Christ, inasmuch as he was to be clothed with flesh, was the idea according to which Adam was formed, whereas the scriptures teach very differently, viz., that he was formed in the image of God. There is more plausibility in the imagination of those who interpret that Adam was created in the image of God because it was conformable to Christ, who is the only image of God. But not even for this is there any solid foundation. 
the, quote, image, unquote, and, quote, likeness, unquote, has given rise to no small discussion. Interpreters searching without cause for a difference between the two terms, since, quote, likeness, unquote, is merely added by way of exposition. First, we know that repetitions are common in Hebrew, which often gives two words for one thing. And, secondly, there is no ambiguity in the thing itself, man being called the image of God because of his likeness to God. Hence, there is an obvious absurdity in those who indulge in philosophical speculation as to these names, placing the zelem, that is, the image, in the substance of the soul, and the demuth, that is, the likeness, in its qualities, and so forth. God, having determined to create man in his own image, to remove the obscurity which was in this term, adds, by way of explanation, in his likeness, as if he had said that he would make man in whom he would, as it were, image himself by means of the marks of resemblance impressed upon him. Accordingly, Moses, shortly after repeating the account, puts down the image of God twice, and makes no mention of the likeness. Osiander frivolously objects that it is not a part of the man, or the soul with its faculties, which is called the image of God, but the whole Adam, who received his name from the dust out of which he was taken. I call the objection frivolous, as all sound readers will judge. For though the whole man is called mortal, the soul is not therefore liable to death nor when he is called a rational animal is reason or intelligence thereby attributed to the body. Hence, although the soul is not the man, there is no absurdity in holding that he is called the image of God in respect of the soul. Though I retain the principle which I lately laid down, that the image of God extends to everything in which the nature of man surpasses that of all other species of animals. Accordingly, by this term is denoted the integrity with which Adam was endued when his intellect was clear, his affection subordinated to reason, all his senses duly regulated, and when he truly ascribed all his excellence to the admirable gifts of his Maker. And though the primary seat of the divine image was in the mind and the heart, or in the soul and its powers, there was no part even of the body in which some rays of glory did not shine. It is certain that in every part of the world some lineaments of divine glory are beheld, and hence we may infer that when his image is placed in man there is a kind of tacit antithesis, as it were, setting man apart from the crowd and exalting him above all other creatures. But it cannot be denied that the angels also were created in the likeness of God, since, as Christ declares, Matthew 22:30, our highest perfection will consist in being like them. But it is not without good cause that Moses commends the favor of God towards us by giving us this peculiar title, the more especially that he was only comparing man with the visible creation. Section 4 But our definition of the image seems not to be complete until it appears more clearly what the faculties are in which man excels and in which he is not to be regarded as a mirror of the divine glory. This, however, cannot be better known than from the remedy provided for the corruption of nature. It cannot be doubted that when Adam lost his first estate, he became alienated from God. Wherefore, although we grant that the image of God was not utterly effaced and destroyed in him, it was, however, so corrupted that anything which remains is fearful deformity. 
and therefore our deliverance begins with that renovation which we obtain from Christ, who is therefore called the second Adam, because he restores us to true and substantial integrity. For although Paul, contrasting the quickening spirit which believers receive from Christ with the living soul which Adam was created, 1 Corinthians 15.45, commends the richer measure of grace bestowed in regeneration, he does not, however, contradict the statement that the end of regeneration is to form us anew in the image of God. Accordingly, he elsewhere shows that the new man is renewed after the image of him that created him, Colossians 3.19. To this corresponds another passage, quote, Put ye on the new man, who after God is created, Ephesians 4.24. We must now see what particulars Paul comprehends under this renovation. In the first place, he mentions knowledge, and in the second, true righteousness and holiness. Hence we infer that at the beginning the image of God was manifested by light of intellect, rectitude of heart, and the soundness of every part. For though I admit that the forms of expression are elliptical, this principle cannot be overthrown, viz. that the leading feature in the renovation of the divine image must also have held the highest place in its creation. To the same effect, Paul elsewhere says that, beholding the glory of Christ with unveiled face, we are transformed into the same image. We now see how Christ is the most perfect image of God, into which we are so renewed as to bear the image of God in knowledge, purity, righteousness, and true holiness. This being established, the imagination of Osiander as to bodily form manages of its own accord. As to that passage of St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 11.7, in which the man alone, to the express exclusion of the woman, is called the image and glory of God, it is evident from the context that it merely refers to civil order. I presume it has already been sufficiently proved that the image comprehends everything which has any relation to the spiritual and eternal life. The same thing, in different terms, is declared by St. John when he says that the light which was from the beginning in the eternal word of God was the light of man, John 1.4. His object being to extol the singular grace of God in making man excel the other animals, he at the same time shows how he was formed in the image of God, that he may separate him from the common herd as possessing not ordinary animal existence, but one which combines with it the light of intelligence. Therefore, as the image of God constitutes the entire excellence of human nature, as it shone in Adam before his fall, but was afterwards vitiated and almost destroyed, nothing remaining but a ruin, confused, mutilated, and tainted with impurity, so it is now partly seen in the elect, insofar as they are regenerated by the Spirit. Its full luster, however, will be displayed in heaven. But in order to know the particular properties in which it consists, it will be proper to treat the faculties of the soul. For there is no solidity in Augustine's speculation that the soul is a mirror of the Trinity, inasmuch as it comprehends within itself intellect, will, and memory. Nor is there a probability in the opinion of those who place likeness to God in the dominion bestowed upon man, as if he only resembled God in this, that he is appointed Lord and Master of all things. The likeness must be within, in himself. It must be something which is not external to him, but is properly the internal good of the soul. Section 5 But before I proceed farther, it is necessary to advert to the dream of the Manichees, 
which Servetus has attempted in our day to revive, because it is said that God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, Genesis 2.7, they thought that the soul was a transmission of the substance of God, as if some portion of the boundless divinity had passed into man. It cannot take long time to show how many gross and foul absurdities this devilish error carries in its train. For if the soul of man is a portion transmitted from the essence of God, the divine nature must not only be liable to passion and change, but also to ignorance, evil desires, infirmity, and all kinds of vice. There is nothing more inconstant than man, contrary movements agitating and distracting his soul. He is ever and anon deluded by want of skill, and overcome by the slightest temptations. While everyone feels that the soul itself is a receptacle for all kinds of pollution, all these things must be attributed to the divine nature if we hold that the soul is of the essence of God or a secret influx of divinity. Who does not shudder at a thing so monstrous? Paul, indeed, quoting from Eratus, tells us we are his offspring. Acts 17:28. Not in substance, however but in quality, inasmuch as he has adorned us with divine endowments. Meanwhile, to lacerate the essence of the Creator, in order to assign a portion to each individual, is the height of madness. It must, therefore, be held as certain that souls, notwithstanding of their having the divine image engraven on them, are created just as angels are. Creation, however, is not a transfusion of essence, but a commencement of it out of nothing. Nor, though the Spirit is given by God, and when it quits the flesh again returns to Him, does it follow that it is a portion withdrawn from His essence. Here, too, Osiander, carried away by his illusions, entangled himself in an impious error by denying that the image of God could be in man without his essential righteousness, as if God were unable, by the mighty power of His Spirit, to render us conformable to Himself unless Christ were substantially transfused into us. Under whatever color some attempt to gloss these delusions, they can never so blind the eyes of intelligent readers as to prevent them from discerning in them a revival of Manichaeism. But from the words of Paul, when treating of the removal of the image, 2 Corinthians 3.18, the inference is obvious that man was conformable to God, not by an influx of substance, but by the grace and virtue of the Spirit. He says that by beholding the glory of Christ, we are transformed into the same image as by the Spirit of the Lord. And certainly the Spirit does not work in us so as to make us of the same substance with God. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www swrb.com We could also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton AB Canada T6L 3 T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or 
swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 free states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.